Hello, and welcome to Mind Matters, presented by Light to Change, where we talk about the who, what, where, why, and how we as a community can make positive changes. The win is up to all of us, and it starts with you. Before I start, let's get into a positive zone, and I'll share my thoughts on a question from Graduate Thrivers Pads Cards. The card drawn is the color pink for reflective thinking. And the question is, what or who makes a positive difference in your life? For this question, I do not have a single answer, as so many make a positive impact in my life. If I start with the closest and most often having impact, it would be my husband. He is patient with my spells and learning curve required to manage them. He is supportive by gently reminding me of my goals when I start to fall back on my safety behaviors. He is comforting because he allows me to talk for hours as I go in circles with my thoughts trying to understand how I get in my own way. The next people I would say that influence my life in a positive way are my children. Not only are they my reason to keep living, but they always know the perfect time to come and give me a hug. They're very understanding that I'm going through things and accept my explanations with compassion. My children exemplify how to see the world with joy, and I really look up to them for it. Some of my friends would follow, like Kristen. She's super open and accepting and always has a supportive word for me. While Ellen inspires me not to forget about the light that shines all around and to keep mine shining as bright, lighting the darkest parts of my personal world. My in-laws are next, as they show me vicariously what it looks like to love and live through trials and tribulations. Finally, my father still makes a positive impact and a big difference in my life 15 years beyond the grave because I remember his loving guidance and pure loving acceptance of the whole me and it pulls me out of my spirals every time. This is season one, mental health. Episode 3, Distress Management Techniques. As a member of the community who are seeking to shine light on how we can change for the positive, (coughs) in a world where so many are suffering with mental health, it is important not only the sufferers be given aid they require, but that we all know the basic emergency response methods to help them, or at very least, Form a training service for those who are willing to step up like we have with CPR first aid certification courses. The first two episodes were all about showing how we all have mental health and we can all be afflicted at any given moment. But but it is something we can understand. Once you understand how your mind works, you can start measuring your distress tolerance which is what we will discuss in this episode. As with the whole topic of mental health, we currently tend to express only the extremes. When someone is asked what distress feels like to them, 
Here are some of the common replies. Feeling distressed or upset is unbearable to me. When I feel distressed or upset, all I can think about is how bad I feel. I can't handle feeling distressed or upset. My feelings of distress are so intense that they completely take over. There is nothing worse than feeling distressed or upset. I don't tolerate being distressed or upset as well as most people. My feelings of distress or being upset are not acceptable. I'll do anything to avoid feeling distressed or upset. Other people seem to be able to tolerate feeling distressed or upset better than I can. Being distressed or upset is always a major ordeal for me. I'm ashamed of myself when I feel distressed or upset. My feelings of distress or being upset scare me. I'll do anything to stop feeling distressed or upset. When I feel distressed or upset, I must do something about it immediately. When I feel distressed or upset, I cannot help but concentrate on how bad the distress actually feels. Here's a line from a clinical document that I feel is crucial to share. An important thing to consider when assessing your own level of distress tolerance is that, like many things in life, doing anything at the extreme can be unhelpful. Think of distress tolerance as a continuum, where at one end of the people can be extremely intolerant of distress, and at the other end, people can be extremely tolerant of distress. Sitting at either end of the spectrum isn't good for you. The reality is that we tolerate distress in different ways when we handle smaller situations, and we usually do it rather well to where we don't recognize the upsetting moment as being distressful. Once you learn to see the moments you handled being upset well, you can start to place different moments you encounter at different places on a scale of tolerance so you may determine which areas could improve with the application of management techniques that you commonly use in highly tolerant situations. A combination of biological and environmental factors usually determines why some people are more intolerant of emotional distress than others, but it is equally relevant what the level of exposure to tolerance practice is through the life someone had. This tolerance exposure, which is part of emotional hygiene, equates to emotional readiness, so you can face life head-on, being able to see the joy of life in each moment, allowing you to truly appreciate each experience. It is logical human behavior to want to avoid negative feelings, though they are part of growing and learning. Sometimes we create a belief around negative emotions, such as, I can't stand this, it's unbearable, I hate this feeling, I must stop this feeling, I must get rid of it, take it away, I can't cope with this feeling, I will lose control, I will go crazy. This feeling will keep going on forever. It is wrong to feel this way. This feeling is stupid and unacceptable. It is weak, it's bad, it's dangerous to feel this way. Those are just some common distress escape methods, but most of us use avoidance, reassurance seeking, distraction or suppression, withdrawing, expressive behavior replacement, and harmful releases like substance abuse.
I am guilty of all these things because I am so hard on myself. I downplay my potential and my contributions. Every time something goes wrong, my self-talk is unbearably self-effacing and I hate feeling that way, so I must get rid of it and fix things till they are better than they were before, which is excessive behavior replacement. Out of fear of losing control, not being accepted, being seen as weak or a failure. I would often say to myself, it's bad or dangerous to feel weak, having grown up with the perspective that anything can be achieved with the right amount of will and dedication. When I couldn't fix the matter or it became recurring, I would give in or avoid it. I would withdraw from things I felt I wasn't deserving of and distract myself from trying to achieve any higher than those I cared for, functioned at, and required of me. I would blame myself for not being able to keep things in order or not seeing something I should have noticed. I considered myself selfish for even trying to have more. On, and on a subconscious level, I deliberately sabotaged my capabilities to avoid these feelings arising from the uncertainties of achieving higher. Despite the fact of doing so, it actually increased the moments of distress and complex and complex impacting because it validated the underachieving reaction. In my resilience workbook, there is a paragraph is written, the issue with each of these escape methods is that they only work in the short term. In the short term, as soon as you avoid, numb, or release yourself, you experience instant relief from whatever distressing emotion you are trying to flee. In this way, it may seem like a really good strategy. And that is probably why you've been using it, because there is some payoff. However, over the long term, it all falls apart. The escape strategy itself is damaging and causes other problems in your life. Your negative emotions usually worsen because you feel you haven't coped well. By continually using your escape strategies, you never learn other more helpful ways of tolerating emotional distress. And by continually using your escape strategy, you never have the opportunity to stay within emotional distress and therefore challenge the beliefs you hold about not being able to tolerate negative emotions. Maybe you can tolerate them, but you have just never given yourself the chance. Analyzing how a distressing moment played out can be beneficial to understanding why there is a level of intolerance that lends to an automatic automatic automated, sorry, response behavior. First, you can consider what triggered the feelings of distress, then determine what negatively driven emotions came into play and what distress tolerance beliefs you applied to the emotions or triggers. Then you must look at what escape methods you applied and what the results ended up being after making those choices. It is important to remember that negative emotions are important to our survival rather than something to be feared and avoided at all costs. Emotions, good and bad, are not permanent, but come and go like a wave. Accepting that distress has its purpose in teaching us how and where we need to grow allows us to be more mindful of how we interact with our emotions and how those interactions reflect in our behaviors and choices. The way we think is our first language how we think to ourselves. Changing how we think to ourselves is like learning a new language. 
When we stress, we tend to default back to comfort. Even when fluent at the second language, it still takes a second to think our way away from the automatic thoughts of our first language. Automatic thoughts are like wearing glasses with a perspective lens. This lens distorts how we think, assume, and the biased rules we live by. These assumptions and biases are automatic conditioned thinking that is like a default operating system, kind of like Windows. Trying to change it can feel like running a Mac program on a Windows system, but mindfulness is like the hardware upgrade that makes the system compatible. As my occupational therapist would say, mindfulness gives you the power to say, thanks brain, but I'm good. I challenge you to prove I need to think this way when I'd rather not. Being comfortable with spending time thinking about uncomfortable thoughts and what you can learn about yourself for the next time makes a big difference in your ability to live happily. Some ways of learning to accept the stress with mindfulness are to be the watcher of your emotions, being able to describe your emotions and physical expressions of them, and being being non-judgmental and curious about why you're experiencing the stress, using imagery to help you measure how you are moving through the stressful situations, being in the moment, and taking in all the details, like a detective looking for a clue, being prepared for resurgence, having a mantra or script to talk yourself through it, and being mindful in the distressing moments. According to my resiliency workbook, the common guiding principle for improving distress is to do the opposite of your escape urge and find specific activities that improve your emotional state. Aside from being mindful, you can flip the script by doing something to activate and soothe your physical emotional state. For many who are deep in therapy, this itself is also an avoidance distraction. However, the physical benefits outweigh the distraction because when you activate your physical operating system and use sensory stimulus to soothe the emotional state, you allow your brain to stop reacting to the situation and become present in the moment so you can begin being mindful of what is happening. <clears throat> to change the idea that the improvement activity is a distraction, it may help to consider it a reward for having been present in the moment as a watcher of your emotions. As my workbook entitled Facing Your Feelings would point out, it is also worth mentioning that doing these opposite actions can be challenging. So words of encouragement and compassion to ourselves may be important when we are fighting it through. It may be useful to think, what encouragement would I give to someone else feeling this way? What would I say to them and what tone would I use? Some other examples of helpful self-talk might be things like, I can stay with this feeling. It is good to practice for me to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. I can get through this. I can tolerate this. This will pass. This is good for me in the long run. I can focus on just getting through this moment. I can breathe with this feeling. This is helping me build my tolerance. Here are some of the things you can do to soothe your emotional state when you feel out of balance. 
most of these I've gathered through various workbooks. And they state, have a good meal, have a nice snack, favorite drink, preferably non-alcohol. Have a picnic with light candle or look at beautiful art or scenery. Watch the stars, go to a beautiful place with soothing or invigorating music. Enjoy the sounds of nature, singing. Be aware and let sounds come and go. Spray your favorite perfume. Put on your favorite lotion. Enjoy smells of nature or flowers. Take a bubble bath. Let water cascade over you in a shower. Get a massage. Pet a dog or cat. Soak your feet. Brush your hair for longer than normal. Do your nails. Men, you have cuticles too. Imagine a relaxing scene or a safe place. Imagine coping and the distress blowing away or passing. Create meaning or purpose from distress. <coughs> Read or think of your spiritual vows, values. Sorry. Focus on any positive aspects in your life. Pray in your own way. Listen to a relaxing tape. Release your tension and relax your muscles. Slow your breathing. Count to ten. Smile. Laugh out loud. Or just take a break or even stay in bed for 20 minutes longer. Here are some examples of things you can do to activate your energy. Again, from my various workbooks. Exercise. Walk or jog. Go to the gym. Lift weights. Take an exercise class. Boxing. Cleaning, like washing the dishes, vacuuming, dusting, gardening. Cook something. Call a friend. Go out to lunch, dinner, or a coffee. Go shopping, if you have the money. Watch a favorite movie. Read a favorite book. Listen to your favorite music. Watch your favorite TV show. Read something interesting. Listen to music that creates a different emotion. Flip through the magazines or newspapers. Play a game. Do a puzzle. Volunteer somewhere. Give someone a present. Do something thoughtful. Make something for someone. As with all the aspects of mental health healing, it is important to be mindful of how your energy changes or is affected by flipping the script and using activating or soothing techniques to calm yourself so you can observe what the outcome was and evaluate how it affected you. You need to relearn your thought language and reduce unhelpful thinking patterns like the following that are listed in my resiliency workbook. Mental filters are a thinking style that involves a filtering in and a filtering out process, a sort of tunnel vision, focusing on only one part of a situation and ignoring the rest. Usually this means looking at the negative parts of a situation and forgetting the positive parts. And the whole picture is colored by what may be a single negative detail. I definitely have a mental filter, but I filter in the positive and filter out the negative in, a generali in generalized situations. But my internal dialogue has a negative filter that only allows me to see where I fall short and that I, I am undeserving of great things. 
I am still trying to work out why there's a disconnect between my expressed thoughts and my internal thoughts. And I'm combing through decades of self-defeating behavior to understand why I'm so hard on myself. But from what I can tell, I used it as a way to push myself to be better for the most part. Except when I would come to a walking away every time. I was surpassing the 80% mark of something that would bring me success. And it seems to lead back to my relationship with my mother, but I'm kind of in denial about that because no one wants to think of their mother as being part of creating a defeatist personality. Jumping to conclusions is when we assume that we know what someone else is thinking. Mind reading, if you would. And when we make predictions about what is going to happen in the future, predictive thinking. This is one for me that is a hit and miss because I tend to overread people's facial reactions and body languages, particularly the ones I care about most. I don't so much assume I know what they are thinking, I just assume I must have done something wrong if their expression changes or seems off. When it comes to predictive thinking, I don't really consider... I will know what will happen, but I'm a Murphy's Law kind of girl, always prepared for whatever could happen. I'm not sure if it's an emotional problem, but it sure bugs some of my family members when I bring twice as much as we really need for any outing. Personalization involves blaming yourself for everything that goes wrong or could go wrong, even when you may only be partly responsible or not responsible at all. You may be make, you might be taking 100% responsibility for the occurrence of external events. I touched on this in mental filters and jumping to conclusions, but I have trained myself to see the best in others which means I filter out the possibility of ill intention or disregard by others making myself responsible due to lack of diligence, provision of guidance, or aid to others. I will even say it's my fault that I took something to heart when I'm offended, excusing the behaviors of others. I struggle with the boundaries because of this and place a world of weight on my own shoulders to ensure I'm always being supportive, understanding, and providing all that I can to lend a helping hand. A big part of why my breakdown occurred was from my personalizing my son's choice to let his battle with mental health win and grow his wings at only 14 years of age. I was a good mother, loving and understanding. I know this. I know I'm not responsible for the choice that was made, and many have taught me to see that if anything, I delayed the choice by giving him as much light as I could. I just can't help to think I should have known. Why did my mom voice not speak louder to me so I could have spoken to him about things? What signs did I miss, and why did I miss them? Should I have loved him more like a baby for longer instead of encouraging him to develop into the amazing young man he already was? I couldn't stop thinking about missed opportunities to just hug him for no reason, about the times he had said no, that I had worked so much with two jobs to provide that he might have felt neglected 
of time from me. And then I hadn't done my job in teaching him how to handle the world he was verging on ready to embrace. The reality is, I will never know what he was thinking in the moment or any moments that led up to them because he didn't express them to me, or anyone for that matter. It has taken time to come to terms with everything, even in the slightest, and still my perspective is slightly personalized and that I think I may have created too much of a contrast. I had formed a rose-colored world and raised an avenger who then went into a world that must have seemed so bleak and gray in comparison. Contrastrophizing occurs when we blow things out of proportion, and we view the situation as terrible, awful, dreadful, and or horrible, even though in reality this problem itself is quite small. I am probably starting to sound crazy, but this too is something I contend with, except that this came into play after my son became an angel. I am not crazy, but I am clinically affected to a degree where I record as such in testing. When focusing on this behavior, I have one big complication. What I perceive is real and not a small thing. I've gotten much better, but for a while, my perception of the world caused, caused me to negatively impact my younger children's lives by segregating them from the world. The realization that I could cannot control the level of pain everyone in the world was feeling, therefore, I could not control its impact on my children. That information was processed in my brain as create a controlled environment. To make it worse, I refused to be even a sliver of reason for their discomfort, so I stopped saying no and became their best friend. Luckily, I had an oh shit moment, and I realized I had been robbing them of experiencing the world for themselves and independently learning reality for its pros and cons. I had allowed them to become very spoiled, and it still breaks my heart each time they leave with every no I ask, and I ask them a million questions to find out how their day went, or if they understand why they got a response they did. Now I try to show them how to accept the B side of life for what it is, but aim for the A side and enjoy the ride along the way. I'm not sure if I want to completely get over this behavior issue, because my perspective lens is a maximum perception of passion and my cognitive functioning abilities have guided me to see the a side of future by exemplifying a mindful life by live learn grow community development program black and white thinking is a thinking style that involves seeing only one extreme or the other you either wrong or right good or bad and so on there is no in-between or shades of gray, except in self-blaming. I see everything else as potential and possibility, granting everyone has a path to the greatest them, and everyone but me deserves to walk that path, stumbling if they must. Except for myself, I smash my path a bit, except for a questionably stable section, just to make it more of a challenge and provide an excuse to walk back to those I love on the side I started. Shitting and musting are not really terms, but common self-talk. 
Sometimes by saying I should or I must, you can put unreasonable demands or pressure on yourself and others. Although these statements are not always unhelpful, like I should not get drunk and drive home, but they can sometimes create unrealistic expectations. I would be repeating myself if I said this is yet another behavior tendency I have, but I will point out that this is a common one Two of the traits overlap. When it comes to putting too much pressure on, I cannot stress enough how real the toll is on the body. I don't think I can count how many times I have murmured to myself that I should have just done it myself and that it would have been done right to the point that my to-do list is everything while everyone else only has one or two responsibilities when they should have more. Overgeneralization. When we overgeneralize, we take one instance in the past or present and impose it on all current or future situations. If we say, you always, or everyone, or I never, then we are probably overgeneralizing. Okay, I don't think this is a behavioral issue for me, but more of a safety net in a sense. I tend to say everyone, or we all so as not to place blame on anyone or to make them feel singled out which allows me to stay in good terms with each one of the people I'm interacting with however when there is an obvious positive I glorify the person and play them up will play myself down with terms as you are a better person than I or diminishing any part I played in the moments leading to the moment in question now let's get to labeling. We label ourselves when others and others when we make global statements based on behaviors in specific situations. We might use this label even though there are many more examples that aren't consistent with that label. I'm just starting to feel better about myself because this is a less common factor in my life. I do label my mom as being miserable and walk into scenarios brace for impact before I know anything about the moment or how she feels in the moment though I feel I allow others to be themselves I also feel this is a big issue for so many people particularly with those who are used bullying as a self-preservation defense I think the more understood term for this is stereotyping and this is also an underlying factor in racism and classism Emotional reasoning is a thinking style that involves basing your view of situations on or yourself on the way you're feeling when the only evidence that something good or bad is going to happen is that you feel like something good or bad is going to happen. This is kind of the same as jumping to conclusions, but more in the way you would yell at a movie character not to go in there, to run, or to not do what they're doing. It's a gut feeling more than an intentional thought. For the most part, it is a good thing to have, except when it stops you from experiencing life or paralyzes you with fear. I think I use emotional reasoning, reasoning in a healthy way, as I use this to talk myself up instead of down. Maybe not in nice words for myself, but it does the trick. I say things like, 
I'm silly to feel this way, or change is a good thing. I have become rather skilled at using emotional reasoning to navigate life, finding ways to pull myself up by my bootstraps and lead those around me out of the murky waters. Now if I can just learn to reason with my inner voice and make it see that I'm not bad, perhaps one day the inner me and the outer me will both agree I am uniquely spectacular. Magnification and minimization is a thinking style where you magnify the positive attributes of other people and minimize your own positive attributes. It's as though you're explaining away your own positive characteristics or achievements as though they're not important. This is another overlapping concept that I already explained I I partake in. But I will give another example from my life to show how common these behavioral tendencies can be. My family hosted a big gathering, and I spent countless hours preparing for it, while my mom only put a pre-made salad in a bowl, but when guests say, what a great spread you set out, I will say, I couldn't have done it without my mom. At the same event, shortly before the guests arrived, my mom and I got into a huge argument because I was not paying attention to her and what she was saying because I was preoccupied with the party. My in-laws had come early and heard the whole thing and were very upset with my mother for talking to me that way. So I told them that I hadn't gotten much sleep the night before and I was the one who was wrong for having a tone and an air of disinterest in her and what she had to say. Safe escape planning is a thinking style where there is an idea of threat in regular situations where you feel compelled to know where the exits are, know where security is, have someone to contact to bail you out, and have peers to defend you. On the low scale, this is accounting for your well-being under the guise of Murphy's Law or Protection. A common example most females from the 90s would remember was having a signal like a specific hair flip or a jewelry movement that alerted your gal pals to wedge in and separate you from the guy who was grinding up on you. I fit into this level of minor escape planning, only reaching higher higher levels in the midst of a breakdown, of my breakdown. When I would bail off mid-work and leave my shift, I would leave gatherings within the first 15 minutes and so on. If you feel you need to be ready to escape anywhere at any time, then you are on the high scale and need to analyze where the distress is coming from. Another method is behavioral masks. It's like fake it till you make it thinking style, where you adopt the opposite behaviors to your thoughts and emotion. Someone who is sad may put on an angry mask. Someone who is depressed may put on on an optimistic mask. Someone who feels weak may put on a mask of determination. Someone who worries a lot may wear a mask of confidence. Or someone who is lonely may wear the mask of a social savant. The same goes for a positive, like someone who is excited may present as a complacent mask. Someone who is brave 
may don an introvert's mask, or a successful person may show a humble mask. Due to the long-lasting taboo around the conversation of mental health, humans have become afraid to show their emotions. Good and bad. I wear a sage mask over a positive mask, over a confident mask, over a scholar's mask, over a compassionate mask that hides an unworthy, non-trusting, depressed, and frail form. I am not exactly into mysticism, but with all the starseed talk that's been floating around, my brain couldn't help to concoct the idea that based on my intuitive understanding of the world and constant self-battering, I must have held some high position they gave me access to vast knowledge, but I must have paid the price for getting there on the backs of others, and I'm learning in this life the pain held in the backs of those who create the stairway. I suppose that's why every time I take a step up, I pull those who formed my last step in my place and step down to form the entire step with just my body until willing bodies come up and say, you've held the step long enough. Let us hold it for a bit, so you can relieve others further up the staircase that deserve to step onto the next step, instead of forming it. The science behind how we interact <clears throat> with our emotions and the stressors of the world we are experiencing can be seen in how we measure our HRV, which is the heart rate variability, and how our symptomatic and parasymptomatic nervous systems are stimulated to respond. We can observe these same interactions through our physiological responses and once we learn to recognize how they speak to us, we can learn to manage them with more ease. Managing distress for many feels like they have no control over their mind or their body because we often have forgot to allow the two to communicate with each other out of misdirected efforts to survive a cruel world taught through generational trauma avoidance. Luckily, there are tools we can apply to help guide us through our daily practice that train us for handling the big and more stressful moments in life. Here's a, one, a fun one you can integrate into your daily schedule and benefits everyone afflicted and unafflicted alike. Gratitude, mindfulness, and grounding cue cards can be made into a game used to select a daily practice activity or just serve it as a reminder to scan through when you need to calm yourself. Over the last year or so, I've accumulated close to 200 activities and I'm aiming for 365 so I can make a one-year mindfulness calendar challenge for my peers and I. These cards outline activities like imagery work, where you visualize something like a wave, train, <clears throat> stream, clouds, or even a room with traffic flow that collects and takes away your stresses and worries. Breathing methods to control your breath rate, lower your heart rate, and center your focus like a belly breath where you are mindful of your diaphragm, or square breathing, where you hold for a four count and release for the same, twice or more as needed. There are also fitness cards and expression cards, as well as brainstorming and brain game activities. 
These cards represent what having emotional hygiene looks like by getting you to practice small examples of management in controlled scenarios. There are many helpful charts that you can download or make for yourself to fill in and track your progress or transitions through distress like symptom monitoring charts, analyzing myself charts, distress tolerant action plans, and problem solving paths. One of my favorite charts and one I refer to rather often is the distress management worksheet that uses each letter of the alphabet to guide you through your analysis of the moment after you have to stay in the moment to record it as you process calming yourself. Distress Management ABC. This is an alphabet of distress management processing. Steps that will help you work through what you are experiencing so you can understand how to better live through the situations that are hindered by your condition, allowing you to take control of how it affects you, how you make choices based on your reactions and triggers and stimulus, and how you express your circumstances to others. A is for activating events. This may be either an actual event or a situation, a thought, a mental picture, or even a recollection. B is for beliefs and bias. What was I thinking? What was I saying to myself? What was I going through? What was I going through in my head at the time? What are the culturally biased statements associated to my thoughts? C is for consequences. What were the physical sensations you experienced? What did you think will happen as a result? How do you feel about trying again? D is for detect. <clears throat> Determine if you have reverted to a safety behavior. Applied unhealthy thinking or were you think in the or were you in the moment or thinking of a different moment? Were other people involved? Now we come to E, where we evaluate. How did the event escalate? Describe the environment. Was your reaction appropriate? Are the facts the same as your thoughts? Are you safe? Face your feelings. What emotions are you experiencing and how does it make you feel? What are hot topic triggers are noticeable? Are you using safety behaviors? Have you accepted the feelings are okay? <clears throat> Pardon me. Gratitude is next. What positive lessons can you take away from this moment? What are you thankful you have right now? What are you thankful for in life? What do you like about yourself? Honesty and humility follow that. <clears throat> Am I being honest with myself about my abilities or self-regard? Am I being honest with others about my condition? Am I making the effort to manage and function? I is for interpersonalization. If the roles were reversed, would you still have the same reaction? What would you say to a friend? 
who came to you with the same problem and how do you contribute to the situation? What can you do to resolve it? To follow this with judgment elimination, am I being too critical of myself or others? By whose standards am I rating the situation by? Do I have all the facts? Am I using foregone conclusions? Am I basing my opinion on a different experience? Have I applied the three sieves of Plato? Perhaps, I think it might have been Socrates. Keep it up is the K one. Be in the moment. Experience it for ups and downs. You can evaluate it later. Practice soothing, returning and maintaining through the moment. L is for lens of perspective. What is the source of the moment's input? What lens are you placing in front of the information? Is there another lens you can use for a better picture? And how exposed are you? M is for the mindfulness approach. Use your senses to notice things about the environment, slow time, and breathe through the moment, or your actions. Record everything like you're filming a movie to watch later. Remind yourself you have practice for this moment. Reflect on your mantras and visualizations. Next is N for navigating. Have you stayed within your boundaries? What part of this moment could you use better management? How can I problem solve in small steps to overcome this moment or prepare better for next time? O is for other factors. Were there other people involved and what was their contribution to the situation? Have you beginning proper self-care? Is there something else on your mind? Were you organized in your environment? Was there a chain of events that led up to the moment? P is for pacing. Are you being patient with yourself? How can you ease yourself back into the moment? How can you prepare yourself to better handle the next situation that is similar? How can you pace yourself to be more effective? Remember the five P's. Planning, practice, preparation, physical positioning, and patience. Q is for questions. How am I feeling now? Am I ready to try again? Have I set myself up for success? Am I dedicated to and focused on my choices? Do I have accurate facts? Have I communicated my circumstances? R is for reflection. Have I documented the experience? How do I feel about the experience? What was successful at what was I successful at navigating? Where can I improve? Did I make every effort to succeed? Am I following my intended path? And what resources can I use to grow? S is for support. Who you can who can you talk to right now? Who can you reflect on this with later? Have you let others know your circumstances? Have you been keeping your network up to date? T is for tools. Have you tried your list of soothing activities? Are you using the tools in your emotional first aid kit? 
Can you add anything to your kit or list? Have you sought resources to assist yourself? U is for unlocking understanding. Are you keeping up or keeping an open mind using different lenses? Are you allowing yourself time to process? Is your mind and body on the same page? Do you understand you can live through with your conditions? Can you unlock the path to the next level? B is for visualizing. Have you visualized the stress passing and what balanced functioning would look like? What are your goals and what do you visualize the stepping stones on the path to achieving, achieving those goals are? W is for well-being check-in. What emotions do you have right now? How does that make you feel? Do you have any aches or pains? Are you feeling heard and seen? Are you prepared for the task at hand? XYZ has no individual definitions, but they stand for don't be ashamed if you need to pause. Just follow the steps and follow the path you choose with dedication. What these tools teach us is that we can't stop the situation, but we can learn to control our responses. All of this is like hearing an airplane message. It's good to know the information and to practice what to do when the plane goes down, but there is still going to be a huge amount of stress in the moment. There will always be stress in the world. The triggers won't magically disappear, and the pain is necessary to growth. The more you practice, the more you will be able to recognize what to do in an emergency, panic situation, or emotional upheaval. This training increases effective rapid response, but you still must choose not to revert to your safety behaviors. Choose to be in the moment and survive it by pausing and slowing down reconnecting the mind to the body so you can move through the moment with understanding of the big picture. As I leave you to think on this topic, I challenge you to think about this mindfulness exercise until then as well. Write down what you think some of your safety behaviors are, their effect on how you process life, and if they are conducive to your personal growth. I will close the conversation by drawing another card from the Positive Attitude Zone Pass cards for short. The question will be the opening question for the next episode. The card drawn is the color green for creative thinking. And the question is, if you had a superpower, what would it be? We will get to that next week. But in the meantime, you can get your pass cards, Positive Attitude Zone, at www.graduatethrivers.com. That's spelled capital G. Small R A D, capital U, small I T, 